Um, I at least want to just welcome you to Redeemer again, regardless of who you are or where you find yourself joining us this morning. If you're joining us from a place of thinking the sound is weird or thinking it's normal, or um, if you're joining us from a place of belief or unbelief, place of joy or a place of sorrow, we're glad that you are here and have decided to hang out with us at Redeemer. So welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is we're a community of people and we're trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And the way that we go, we go about trying to do that is we gather together each week like this so that we can worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in his great love for us. And then we get together throughout the week in small groups and individually, we hang out with each other, we watch March Madness together with each other, we watch Jurassic World with each other, and uh, we try to remind one another of his great love for us. And so as we rest in his love and remind one another of his love, we then delight to become a people that spread throughout Midtown in service so that we might reflect his love to our community because we dream of seeing Midtown and our city flourish, flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. And so that's a little bit about who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor as we rest and remind and reflect. And in order to help us do that, really through the season of Epiphany and now into the season of Lent, we have been looking at this great book from the Bible called First Peter. And it's this wonderful letter, and we're, we're asking this question. It's helping us answer this question. What does it look like to be the church in a post-Christian culture? And what's so helpful about this book is that it gives you this image, this metaphor. If you've been with us before, you'll know that all throughout First Peter, there's this image that the church is described as exiles, meaning that we're refugees. This is not our real home. And so we're not really ever going to fit in here. We're always going to look strange, always feel a little bit different. And what I want you to see from our passage this morning is that we even suffer in a strange way. Our reaction to suffering is different. I mean, if you noticed, even from, from Joel reading this passage, in almost every verse of this passage, it's about suffering. Just look at it real quick. Verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Verse 14, if you are insulted. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian. And then down to the end, 19, therefore let those who suffer, on and on and on. Peter is talking about what it means to suffer as someone who follows Jesus. What it means to suffer as someone who identifies yourself as a Christian. This is, you know, you see this explicitly in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian. He's saying, basically, if you're a Christian, you are going to suffer and have hardships in this life precisely because you are a Christian. But in a certain sense, that's not really unique. It doesn't matter if you are a Christian or not. Everybody, in some sense, is going to experience hardship and challenge and loss and grief and suffering. And so if you zoom out, I think what makes this passage so unbelievable is it also helps you think through how Christians respond to our suffering, how faith in Jesus impacts the way that we experience what, in some sense, everybody experiences, challenge, loss, and hardship. So that's what I want to look at. How do Christians respond to suffering differently? What is our strange response to suffering? I want to show you three things, three ways. We expect, 
We engage, we entrust. Those are the three things that I want to show you from this passage. This is not an exhaustive list by any means of how Christians respond to suffering, um, but we expect we engage, we entrust. And just to cite some of my sources, I'm, I'm getting a lot of help today from another pastor named Rankin Wilburn. I've never had an original thought ever, and so I'm getting a lot of this help from him. So let's look at these non-exhaustive lists of how Christians respond to suffering. The first is that we expect. We expect. And you see this right from the jump, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter does something here I think is so helpful. He normalizes our hardships. He normalizes our suffering. When you experience loss, grief, betrayal, it's very tempting to say and to think, well, this is, this is abnormal, this is unique. And Peter is saying, you're, this is not abnormal. What you're experiencing is quite, unfortunately, normal. You are experiencing a normal, non-unique thing. Suffering is the norm in this life. And I think that that is so uh, helpful to expect suffering because when it comes to, when you, when you experience something that is hard and, and, and gut-wrenching and, and horrible, if you're anything like me, there is this extra burden that I add to it by feeling like I shouldn't be suffering in this way. I should know how to get past this. I should be happier in that should there that you put on yourself is, is this added weight to the burden that you're already carrying. In fact, it reminds me of this um, Jim Gaffigan joke I included in, at the front of your bulletin, stand-up comedian. He says, uh, he talks about having five kids and living in this small apartment in New York City. And he says, um, you know what it's like having five kids? Imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. I think it's an amazing joke, but it's a helpful image of the sense of when you're drowning, when you're underwater, when it feels like you can't catch your air, then you add this other burden on top of it. And the the other burden that you and I typically add is that should, I shouldn't be experiencing this. I shouldn't be suffering this way. I should figure out how to get out of this. And if you're not a should person, maybe for you it's you're adding self-pity. You're adding this extra weight of, you know, what's wrong with me? Why can't I solve this problem? Or you add this extra weight of, of shame or embarrassment of, uh, of, you know, what if somebody finds out about this? What Peter is doing is essentially saying what you're going through is hard enough. And so you can shed that extra layer of shame or of self-pity or of, uh, of embarrassment or, or, you know, whatever, the shoulds. You can get rid of that extra weight. What you're going through is hard enough. Expect hardship and suffering in this life. But the reality is, is that when you and I do go through fiery trials, we are surprised. It does, it throws us off and we're disrupted and we're disoriented and and, and we don't understand it. And I think one of the reasons why is because it shows us that we have been living our entire life built off of an illusion. And the illusion is this, that we are in control as Western people, we have been told our entire lives, you can do anything you want to do, you, you, you can go be anything you want to be, and so we, we get into this mindset, I have control over my life. I can, I, if I just get the right pieces, if I make the right decisions, I get the right education, I come up with the right game plan, 
I can move forward and my, I can manage my life. My life will work out, work out for me. When I was in a seminary in Charlotte, when Catherine and I were living in Charlotte, I was going to see a counselor at the time. And I was becoming aware, really for the first time in my life, of how much of a control freak I really am, of how much I want to control my environment, how much I want to control people's opinions of me and perceptions of me, how much I want to control Catherine and how she relates to me. And so I'm, I'm, I remember sitting in this you know, counseling room with this man, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of discovering all this. I'm seeing it all for the first time. Oh my goodness, I'm trying to control everything. And I, and I, just, and I looked at him and was like, well, like, like, what do I do? Like, tell me what to do. And you know counselors. He kind of had this smirk on his face. He was holding his chin, just kind of looking at me. And, 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 he, and he says to me, so Matt, are you asking me to help you get your controlling impulses under control? Are you trying to help me, or you want me to help you control how much of a control freak you are? And, you know, I was exposed. So I was like, yes, but then I felt like I can't even ask you the question, well, what do I do? Because I realized that question is the problem. And so I didn't even, I don't even know what to say. Just help, help. I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what to say. But what was, so, what was helpful about that interaction is it exposed to me this assumption that I have in the core of my being that if you just tell me what to do, I'll go do them and the problem will be fixed. Just give me the formula and if I follow the formula, problem solved. What suffering does, though, is it comes in like a wrecking ball, and it, and it shows you that what you have built your entire life on is, 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 is misguided. We don't have control. And so when we lose control, we feel surprised, and we feel thrown off by it. And Peter says, no, you've never really had control. Therefore, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Now, before we go on to point two, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Because you may be sitting there and you're thinking, okay, if, if, if we're just going to expect the worst in every situation, we're always going to expect suffering, doesn't that, isn't that going to make us cynical? Aren't we going to be these cold-hearted, stoic people? I mean, for example, um, there was a stoic philosopher, famous old you know, stoic philosopher named Epictetus. And stoicism as a philosophy taught this. You should expect the worst in every scenario. That's how you get through life. Therefore, you won't be disappointed by anything. And here's what he suggested. He says, when you are putting your child to bed at night, as you're kissing them goodnight, he Gospel logic. You, under, you overlay the gospel on top of your pain and you understand it through that lens. What does that mean? What does that look like? Verse uh, 13, Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's kind of the basic logic kind of tied up in that one little verse. He's saying Jesus suffered. You're sharing in his sufferings. He suffered. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. On the cross, he was vulnerable. He was powerless. He was exposed. He was weak. He was beaten. He was broken. He suffered. And what did he experience on the far side of the cross? 
He experienced glory and resurrection and, and life. That's the gospel logic. Death, then resurrection. Suffering, then vindication. And Peter is building off of that logic in this whole passage, really in this, this whole letter. He, he is saying, we as, if, if you're a Christian, if you consider yourself a Christian and you're suffering in a weird, mysterious way, you are sharing in his sufferings. That's what verse 13 is saying. And you will also one day get to rejoice when his glory is revealed and he comes back again. You suffer and you experience glory. You enter into the same gospel logic that Jesus experienced. So here's what that might look like practically for you. I know this is very esoteric, but here's what it might look like practically. When you enter into a place of sadness and loss, you can say to yourself, I know I'm not alone. The man of sorrows is with me. He is, he, he is, he is, he is with me here in this place and in a strange way from this desperate position, I actually have a unique access to his presence that I didn't have before. I have unique access to his comfort and to his strength and his joy that I didn't have before. And you can console, be consoled with the hope that one day all of these tears are going to be wiped away. Every loss I'm experiencing is going to be restored. All of my suffering one day will be vindicated. That's what I mean. You engage and you understand your pain. You don't run away from it. You don't avoid it. You feel it, but you understand it through the lens of the gospel. Jesus suffered and he rose to new life. And here I am suffering in Jesus, and one day I will be raised to life in Jesus as well. Now, I know that that is way easier said than done. How can you do this? What would convince you to want to begin to do this? Well, we got to look at this last thing, this third thing, briefly. We entrust. We expect suffering we engage it with the gospel and then we entrust. And here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That word entrust is an amazing word. It means to turn over to the care of somebody else, to take something of value and to put it in someone else's hands for them to, you know, for them to take care of, for them to have safekeeping over it. Uh, for example, a number of years ago, my wife Catherine and I, we went on this trip to Colorado, and we went without our children, which meant we had to leave our children behind. We were living in Knoxville at the time. We had to leave our children with somebody to watch after them for like a week in Knoxville. Who did we get to do that? Did we hire some rando to come and watch our children? Just Google search on, you know, whatever, Craigslist, find somebody to come watch our children for a week? No, we, we wanted somebody that we knew, that was vetted, that we trusted, that we've seen interact with our, with our children before. Why? Because we are entrusting them with precious cargo. We're not going to hand over something this immensely valuable to us unless you have really proven that you know what you're doing. 
In the same way, this is what Peter is, is, is inviting us to do, to entrust our souls to God, to give over our very lives to him in the moment where things are the worst, which is maybe the most counterintuitive thing that Peter can ask of us. Because when my life is underwater, I am desperately grabbing for any kind of control, any kind of stability that does not feel natural to release, to surrender, to give my life over to God and say, it's in your hands. And yet that's what Peter's inviting us to do. But so how can we trust God with the precious cargo of our very lives? How can we entrust ourselves to him? How has he proven himself to not drop the ball on us? Well, did you know that the word entrust, it's actually the same exact word that Jesus uses on the cross? In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, when he's hanging from the cross, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Same word, I entrust my spirit, my soul, my life. At the moment of utter powerlessness, complete vulnerability, he hands his life over and entrusts it to God, which means this, what Peter is asking of you, Jesus has done for you. The Bible never asks anything of you that Jesus hasn't already first done for you. And what did God do with that precious cargo? What did he do with that life that was entrusted to him? Three days later, he raised him out of the grave and used that sacrifice to kickstart this revolution of making all things new, utter redemption, which means if God can do that with the cross of Jesus, he can do that with the crosses that you and I bear as well. You can look at that and know I can give over my life into his hands. He will take the precious cargo of my life and if he can redeem the worst thing that has ever happened in human history, the unjust execution of the son of God, if he can redeem that, he can redeem anything in my life. And so you can look at the cross and you can begin to do this. You can say, okay, I don't know why this is happening in my life. I don't know why God would bring something like this so painful into my life, but I know it's not because he's punishing me. I can look at the cross and I can know he loves me. I can know that he is for me. And you can look at the cross and you can say, because of the cross, I also know that he is with me. This is where James Cone, I think, is so helpful. He talks about, he refers to God as the God of the gallows. That if our Messiah is a crucified Messiah, that means that God is, is in solidarity with those who are suffering, those who are oppressed, those who are hurting. So if you're at the bottom and you are hurting and you are oppressed and you are suffering, you can look at the cross and say, I know he's with me. He's with me. He's for me. And you can look at the cross and say, I don't know what's gonna come of my life now that this thing has come into it and it's decimated it. But if God can take up the, the broken pieces of Jesus's life and bring about resurrection, he can take the broken pieces of my life and bring about something redeeming as well. You look at the cross and you entrust your very life to him, knowing what he is capable of doing with it. So, you put all that together. And when suffering and when pain comes, you expect it. 
You expect and are not surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. You engage it. You don't numb out. You don't avoid it. You don't spiritualize it away, but you engage it with the very logic of the gospel itself. And then you entrust your life to him because he's a God that also gave away his life for you. That is so different. The way that you encounter and experience suffering, that is so strange. That is so different. That is what will give you the power to actually sing while you weep, to rejoice as you rage. Only the gospel can give it to you. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, it's, um, it's very strange to be able to, to talk about things that I know so very little about. I pray that for those of us in this room that are hurting, that are carrying around burdens that are too massive and too heavy for them to bear, I pray that you would come alongside them, even in this moment, and remind them that you are a God of the oppressed, of the hurting, of the brokenhearted. You are a God that draws close to the brokenhearted. And I pray that you would give us a renewed hope and a vision of what you do with pain and suffering in this world. You redeem it and you use it to make all things new in your mysterious providence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.